From Public Radio International and the Futuro Media Group, I'm Maria Hinojosa, and this is America Abroad. Today, a special collaboration with NPR's Latino USA. In December of last year, President Obama made an announcement. Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. This set in motion a string of policy changes, and representatives for each country are now hammering out the details, however gradually. Through these changes, we intend to create more opportunities for the American and Cuban people and begin a new chapter among the nations of the Americas. Now, I'm putting this mildly. The reactions to this have been mixed. Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey had this to say. If you're going to normalize relationships, you gave everything the Castro regime has wanted and has had advocates for here uh, in the United States, and you got nothing in return. Cuban exiles here in the U.S. came out and protested. And many Cubans are far from hopeful. Vicente Rodriguez is a former political prisoner living in Cuba. The system won't change. Well, the change will be with the North American government, but here the problems will still be the same. People will still be hungry, they'll still be paid low salaries. But to others, the opening of relations with Cuba means so much. Economic opportunity and free trade are important factors. Abel Garcia is a barber and a painter in Cuba. There are lots of products, especially in the field of medicine and medical equipment, and a whole bunch of things that can be bought in the United States, which is closer and cheaper. And yet Cuba has to invest and buy these items elsewhere from places that are much farther away and more expensive. It's like this with thousands of products and things that this country needs. And for many Cuban-Americans, the idea of reunification with family members weighs heavily. So I still have a sister in Cuba, and she has a daughter who's still there, who just had a baby a couple of weeks ago. So she's a new grandmother. I have aunts and uncles and cousins there as well. Isis Fernandez Rojas lives in Texas. She's half Cuban, half Guatemalan. Her father came over to the U.S. to evade authorities during the 1970s, and her family just isn't able to come to the United States. They can't come here for birthdays or for Christmas or for any of the big events We've been able to email back and forth, but even then we're very it's very limited to what we actually can say to each other. We don't really talk about politics and we don't really talk about what we think about things. So when she heard President Obama's announcement, ISIS got, well, emotional. The floodgates just opened. I sat down here in my office and I, I needed to take five, ten minutes to myself and just just said wow, this is, this, is, this is big. I mean, this, this can actually be huge for my family. Today, we're going to spend some time exploring the personal stories, the family histories, and the politics around the changing U.S.-Cuban relationship. But to start, we're going to leap back a bit in history. Pero 
the United States was always the El Dorado, the prosperous, abundant country that they admired, liked, and wanted to emulate, and also the great imperialist power that was threatening Cuban sovereignty. From about 1901 on, if you study Cuban historiography, the two great villains are Spain and the United States. So the Cuban attitude towards the United States is a very complex one. It is the most highly developed version of the love-hate relationship. Mark Falkoff is with the American Enterprise Institute. It's this complex relationship that has made relations between the U.S. and Cuba so strained over the past five decades. But our story goes back much further. The island of Cuba occupies a special place in history. It was precisely to these shores that Columbus sailed his ships five centuries ago. It was here that Europeans first set foot on American soil. You are probably familiar with the poem, In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And that's the year he first encountered the island, about 90 miles south of what is now the Florida Keys. It was then occupied by indigenous tribes. Columbus claimed this island for the Spanish Empire, and for more than 400 years, it remained under Spanish rule. Then, in the late 19th century, a group of Cuban revolutionaries stood up against the crown. The United States was watching closely. University of North Carolina history professor Louis Perez. The nightmare of American statesmen from Adam and Jefferson, and perhaps even deep into the 20th century, is that a hostile European power would locate itself in Cuba and thereby threaten American strategic interest, maritime interest, commercial interest, economic interest. So, in 1898, the U.S. intervened in the revolution, and with the Cuban rebels, they defeated Spain. The Cubans longed for independence, but the U.S. worried about European intervention if another revolt sprung up. Their solution was the Platt Amendment. Cuba is denied the right to make treaties with other countries. Cuba has to cede territory sufficient for an American naval station. And then finally, the Cuba concedes to the United States the right to intervene when in the judgment of the United States, and the phrase was life, liberty, and property, were menaced. And so the condition of Cuban, what we call independence, in 1902, effectively reduces Cuba to a protectorate. Over the next 30 years, the U.S. sent troops to Cuba three times to put down local rebellions and secure stability on the island. The presence of American troops helped keep order, but the Cubans were becoming resentful of the United States. Beginning in the 1930s, the U.S. took a new approach to Latin America with the good neighbor policy. President Franklin Roosevelt addressed this change in 1936. The American Republic to the south of us have been ready always to cooperate with the United States on a basis of equality and mutual respect. But before we inaugurated the good neighbor policy, there was among them resentment and fear because certain administrations in Washington had slighted their national pride and their sovereign rights. And so we have abandoned the Platt Amendment that gave us the right to intervene in the internal affairs of the Republic of Cuba. In many Latin American countries, the U.S did take a more hands-off approach, but Cuba was too important. Following another revolt in 1933, the United States helped install Fulgencio Batista. He would go on to dominate Cuban politics for the next 25 years. For six years, the army has run the country and Batista has been virtual dictator. Here is one strong man who is well-loved, who has ruled wisely and preserved freedom. 
Batista instituted labor and economic reforms and for a time led the island through a period of stability. UNC history professor Luis Perez says he also helped deepen Cuba's political and cultural ties to the U.S. Tens of thousands of Cubans are educated in the United States. Hundreds of Cuban army officers are trained by the Department of Defense. And with that comes a Cuban affection for American culture. Would you like to spend the weekend in Havana? And it's not unusual where someone would go out in an anti-American demonstration in Havana and after the demonstration ended to go to a movie theater and watch and enjoy an American movie. But America's relationship with Cuba had a darker side. The arrival of organized crime, the presence of the mafia, gambling, prostitution, drugs. The country is slowly perceiving itself to becoming this very distasteful cesspool of the worst elements of American popular culture. During the 1940s and 50s, Batista's rule became increasingly repressive and corrupt. And despite economic growth, the gap between the haves and the have-nots in Cuba grew wider. Growing resistance to Batista soon turned violent, and guerrilla uprisings and urban riots broke out across the country. The leader of this guerrilla movement was Fidel Castro. In front of the presidential palace in Havana, nearly a million people, which is just about the whole population of this capital city, gathered at the bidding of their new leader, Fidel Castro. The summary courts martial and executions of Batista followers have brought criticisms from abroad, especially America. Castro wanted to know how his countrymen felt on the subject, and the hysterical reception shows that Cubans would support just about anything he did. The Cuban people were fed up with political violence and corruption that had plagued Cuba for decades. Castro offered a new beginning and an end to American influence. Historian Luis Perez. The power of Fidel Castro lay in part in his capacity to summon a vision of dignity, of independence, and a large part of that was this unrelenting attack on the United States for the misdeeds of the previous 50, 60 years. So this becomes one of the central elements by which Fidel Castro mobilizes politically the Cuban people. For American officials, the rise of this communist leader reignited old fears of a hostile government just off America's shore. Castro fueled those fears by nationalizing American businesses. In 1961, the U.S. broke off diplomatic relations with Cuba. Soon after, the CIA devised a plan in which a group of Cuban dissidents, armed and trained by the CIA, would attack the island at the Bay of Pigs. The idea was to start an uprising that would free Cuba from Castro's hold. But the mission failed. On April 17th, mercenary gangs supported by the United States began an armed attack on our country. We replied with mobilization of the entire people, and we went to meet the invaders. The enemy was confused. He had thought that our defense would crumble under the very first attack. He did not expect all the Cuban people to rise against him. This was an embarrassment to the Kennedy administration and only strengthened Fidel Castro's grip on Cuba. The Cuban people were hopeful that the revolution would bring democracy, but Castro had other plans. This from a 1961 BBC interview. 
You obviously have a great deal of support among the people of Cuba, Dr. Castro. Why, in that case, do you not hold elections on a democratic basis? We ask it to the people. The people, people said we don't want political now because we are working. And political was good only for robbers and for criminals. We are building the house. After build the house, we will find the house and we'll organize the house. Castro's promise of freedom and democracy never materialized. Instead, the new Cuban leader looked to the Soviet Union as his model. You are regarded in many quarters, Dr. Castro, as a communist. Do you regard yourself as a neutral in the Cold War, like India or Egypt? Or do you regard yourself as aligned with the communist powers? Why are you thinking in war? I think that the best thing for peace is thinking in peace. I am with the peace. But many of Castro's policies were far from peaceful. And for its part, the U.S. imposed an economic embargo on the island, cutting off exports to Cuba, ending travel to the island from the U.S., and a host of other sanctions. At the same time, Cuba and the Soviet Union became increasingly friendly. In October of 1962, this alliance led to a global crisis. President Kennedy addressed the American people on the evening of October 22, 1962. This government as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Theodore Sorensen was a speechwriter and top advisor for President Kennedy at the time. He talks about the most critical moment of that two-week standoff, five days after Kennedy's announcement. That Saturday, the news was all bad. First, a fleet of Soviet submarines was seen heading for the American blockade. Next, a U.S. reconnaissance plane was shot down. Then, a U.S. Air Force plane based, I believe, in Alaska... His navigation controls malfunctioned, and he flew over Siberia. What were the Soviets to think? Presumably, they thought it was the beginning of World War III. Word of all this reached the XCOM, and there was a grimace around the table. JFK broke the silence by saying, if your listeners will excuse me, this is what he said, there's always one SOB who doesn't get the message. On October 28th, the two superpowers stopped just short of nuclear war. For the Kennedy administration, the Cuban Missile Crisis was seen as evidence of just how dangerous a hostile Cuba could be. The Soviet Union continued to support Fidel Castro's regime for three decades after the Cuban Missile Crisis, supplying the island with nearly $6 billion in annual aid. And when the Iron Curtain fell in 1991, Cuba was hit hard. UNC professor Luis Perez describes a dramatic shift on the island. Anybody who had been in Cuba in the 90s cannot help but have a presentiment of an apocalypse in Cuba. All of a sudden, this economy just came to a grinding halt, and in many ways, it goes back in time. The tractors are replaced by oxen, cars are replaced by bicycles. There is this strange quiet that descends on Cuba as factories close down, buses cease to operate. When we come back, We'll pick up our history of U.S.-Cuban relations after the end of the Cold War 
and we'll hear personal stories of exiles here in the U.S. and about the lives of Cubans on the island building businesses today. When America Abroad returns. Welcome back. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and this is a special collaboration between Latino USA and America Abroad, Cuba and America after the thaw. We left off our history with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Cuba was in rough shape, and their economic woes forced the communist leadership to undertake small market reforms, to try and boost foreign investment, and to encourage more tourism on the island. But the communist regime remained firmly in place, and American presidents stayed firm in their closed-door policy towards Cuba. In 1992, Congress passed the Cuban Democracy Act, strengthening the sanctions that had been in place since the 1960s. President George H.W. Bush signed the bill in front of an enthusiastic Miami audience. Our policies and principles rest on a single belief for freedom to rise in Cuba Fidel Castro must fall. And today, then the Clinton administration considered easing the embargo until March of 1996. Two and a half weeks ago, the world received a harsh reminder of why a democratic Cuba is so important in broad daylight and without justification. Cuban military jets shot down two unarmed United States civilian aircraft, causing the deaths of three American citizens and one U.S. resident. This led to the signing of the Helms-Burton Act, which implemented some of the toughest sanctions on Cuba to date. Today I sign it with the certainty that it will send a powerful, unified message from the United States to Havana that the yearning of the Cuban people for freedom must not be denied. In 2006, Raul Castro took the reins from his ailing brother Fidel. But with few signs of any real change in Cuba, President George W. Bush held firm to the same position of nine American presidents before him. This from October of 2007. America will have no part in giving oxygen to a criminal regime victimizing its own people. We will not support the old way with new faces the old system held together by new chains. The operative word in our future dealings with Cuba is not stability. The operative word is freedom. But here we are, eight years later, and there's been a major shift in tone and in policy. This from Obama's 2015 State of the Union address. You know, in Cuba, we are ending a policy that was long past its expiration date. Well, what you're doing doesn't work for 50 years. It's time to try something new. Ending the embargo formally would take an act of Congress and countless rounds of negotiations. There's no timetable in place for the change, but attention is now focused on how the decline of the Castro brothers will affect relations with the United States. Up next, we'll look at how this history has impacted generations of Cubans and their families, both on and off the island. Most Cuban exiles who fled to the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s don't support normalizing relations with the island. But 
younger generations of Cubans and Cuban-Americans understand the relationship between the countries in a very different way. It can even become an emotional debate within families and couples. Reporter Maria Muriel of WLRN in Miami talked to one young couple and their families about their views. When you walk into Chris Alvarez's home, the first thing you see are three large frame documents. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Chris is 31 and an Iraq War veteran. Joining the military, I raised my right hand and said, I will protect and defend the Constitution in the United States. Um, and I take that very seriously. At Chris's house, extended family comes together for dinner and a talk about the thaw between the U.S. and Cuba. Chris supports it. His girlfriend, Ariana Mendez, who's 22, does not. I think that um, the embargo should stay. That is something that needs to be there. It, more than symbolic, it, it serves a purpose. I kind of have a looser stance on it than most uh, Cuban refugees. Cuban refugees like Ariana's parents, Andrea and Ernesto Mendez, they arrived in the U.S. in 1980. Andrea's dad was part of the Batista government that Fidel Castro overthrew, so her family was targeted for persecution. The Cuban government let Andrea's mother leave for the States, but Andrea couldn't go with her. So when her mother got sick, she couldn't be there. Her mother ended up dying. Andrea says, your mom's dying and some guy says you can't leave the country just because you don't think like him. And then she can't keep talking. No puedo seguir Chris's grandmother, Ana Maria, sides with Ariana's mother. She remembers her plane ride from Cuba to Miami. Cuando cruzamos el límite del aire donde el gobierno cubano nos podía hacer retroceder, que el piloto dijo, estamos en aire internacional, bienvenidos a los Estados Unidos de América. The pilot told them, we're in international airspace now. Welcome to the U.S. The memory still gives Ana Maria goosebumps today. These are the stories Ariana is used to hearing. So it's, you grow up with those stories and that becomes part of your identity. And that becomes part of what makes you tick. But Chris ticks differently. I don't think it's an all or nothing game. He doesn't want to rush to end the embargo. But he thinks it's time to start working with Cuba again. You know, if, if we're talking to them sideways, if we're lucky, sideways we can get in some, some uh, capitalist ideas or Western ideas. Do you ever, like, get really mad at each other when you talk about this stuff? One time. Mm-hmm. Um, the first initial conversation was a bit more heated, uh, but we tend to respect each other's opinions and our discourse is very civil. Part of what makes that civility possible is Chris and Ariana's freedom, but not just from the Castro regime. These younger Cubans are distanced enough from the island's history that they can have a broader view of the future. For Latino USA, I'm Maria Muriel in Miami. And now from family to economy. Over the last few years, President Raul Castro has been introducing limited market reforms to slowly liberalize Cuba's socialist economy. The government has started allowing small, private businesses to operate on the island. And now it's been experimenting with turning state enterprises into cooperatives and letting the workers own and run them. For the first time in decades, these enterprises give workers a stake in their success and allow their members to take home the money they earn. 
Jonathan Wolf has our story. It's Thursday afternoon at the Baya Health and Beauty Institute in Havana. The five o'clock exercise class is packed. Baya is a beauty salon that operates out of an old mansion. It used to belong to the Cuban government, but was recently converted into a cooperative. Tania Lourdes Ortiz Fernandez gives facials here. She made around $15 a month when Bay was run by the government. Now, she makes around 42. Plus, she has a say in running the business. The other system we had was a little imposing, because before we had to work with the products we had here, and, well, everything was secret. For example, an inspector would come and the products that weren't from here, the products that I had to give good service, I had to hide them. I think a lot of people feel the same way as me, that we're happier now than the system we had before. Cooperative farms have existed in Cuba since the beginning of the revolution. But this is the first time that the Castro government is permitting non-agricultural co-ops to operate. That is, Cuban corporations that are not controlled by the state. Before, we belonged to the government's parent company. In Bea's lobby, President Adriana Cervantes says she's anxious, but welcomes the change. The parent company told us what we had to do, and we were obliged to do everything they imposed on us. Today, now that we're a cooperative, we have the freedom to make our own rules. We can design everything ourselves. Nearly 300 co-ops have opened in Cuba during the last year. They're democratically run. The workers vote on a budget and elect a president. Cuba is divesting these state businesses because, basically, it can't afford not to. The state cannot uh, be responsible for unplugging your toilet or fixing your car or, uh, you know, running the restaurants and cafeterias all over town. And that's what it did until a year ago. That's Rafael Betancourt an independent consultant who works with international enterprises and co-ops in Cuba. So the decision is made, let's stop doing these activities as a, as a state and let's turn them over to their workers. When you decide that, you have two choices. You can sell them. Or if you are still, as Cuba is, pursuing socialism as a model, as an ideal, then you can try to give it to the workers and maintain some modicum of, of collectivism. One of the more popular co-ops to use in town is Taxi Rutero. It runs a small fleet of buses that it rents from the government on fixed routes around Havana. The co-op's members are responsible for everything, from training to repairs. Here I am on 31st Street about to get onto the new bus. A ride on Taxi Rutero costs 23 cents, compared to the 2 cents for a government bus, which tends to be unreliable. For clients Aniel Nelson and Arely Sanchez, the higher price is worth it. They're good quality, comfortable. They're great. This is much better because it's a lot more comfortable, it has air conditioning, it's affordable, and you have a comfortable trip. My taxi rutero driver, Luis Leon, also likes the setup. For example, for example, I make what I earn. I'm paid for the effort I put in. Because sometimes, I don't know, there are other jobs out there where you work and work and work, and you never see the fruit of your labor. There are issues, Leon says. It's hard to find spare parts for the buses, and the government doesn't provide them. But even Cuba's famous shortages 
aren't likely to slow down the expansion of the private sector. Well, in many ways, it's really a sea change. That's Eric Leinson of Seoul Economics, a U.S. enterprise that promotes socially responsible business in Cuba. Over lunch, he predicts that soon, half of Cuba's economy will be in the private sector. So on the one hand, what has been very secure in the past is no longer so secure. On the other hand, on the upside, I would say for many people, is there's much more possibility of creatively engaging in building their own future. So it's a very brusque and a very fundamental change in the mindset of how Cubans operate as sort of economic beings. Evidence of this change can be seen in many of Cuba's new cooperatives. Today is Cafe Bien Misabe's grand reopening, the first day it's operating as a cooperative. And as it happens in Cuba, there's a blackout. Normally, in an average government-run restaurant, employees wouldn't be thrilled about serving customers in the dark. But here at Bien Misabe, they're cooking by candlelight. And head waitress Ludmila Hernandez is assuring her customers that the lights will be back soon. We're giving the best service we can under these circumstances. Drinks and some dishes that haven't been affected by the lack of electricity. If it succeeds, this experiment could salvage some of the character of the socialist revolution as Cuba moves forward. Before we thought we knew where we were going as a country, as a society, we had this sort of all planned out. History proved that we were totally wrong. We had no idea where we were going. Consultant Rafael Betancourt. We were not on a path to socialism or communism or whatever. We were in a particular circumstance that collapsed as, 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 a, as an option in the world. And rather than accepting the fact that we all have to be now cutthroat capitalists because that's the only option, we're really seeking a third route, a third path. This social experiment is very different from the one Betancourt was living 20 or 30 years ago. He says this time it's about building a more democratic society, where Cubans have a greater say in their daily lives, without forgetting their past. For Latino USA, I'm Jonathan Wolf. Miami-based poet Ángel Cuadra was a true dissident, fighting for democracy in Cuba. He protested against the Batista government in the 1950s, and his underground protests against the Castro regime in the 1960s cost him 15 years in prison. Now, he's a leading intellectual in the Cuban exile community. His great-niece, Vanessa Rancaño, brings us his story and his reflections on changing U.S.-Cuba relations, beginning with the moment Cuadra and his fellow students realized the democracy they'd been fighting for would never happen as long as Fidel Castro was in power. Angel had three options. Join the regime, leave the country, or stay and try to steer the Cuban revolution back onto what he deemed its rightful course. He chose option three. At that time, government repression was intense. He says a surveillance committee was set up on every block to supervise what was going on. You couldn't just go stay with your family for a while. You'd have to report the move to a defense committee and get a permit. Food was limited to ration card provisions, and police raids snatched up people who disapproved of the government. He says it was like a policeman was inside him. People felt like they were being watched from every angle. Terror was the foundation the regime established to control the population, he says. Terror and hunger. How did you start organizing in that context? 
¿Cómo empezaron a organizar en ese ambiente? Creamos una organización entre tantas que hubieron, una organización subversiva. They started a subversive organization, one of many. Yo lo reescribí muchas veces y otros más. No, no había televisión más que la oficial. There was no radio, no TV, no media except state-run media, he says. So there was no choice but to work underground. que trabajar clandestinamente. His job was to write for a publication called Democratic Cuba. He wrote under a pen name and distributed it however he could. Capturaron y fusilaron cuatro compañeros nuestros. Four of his comrades were executed, he says. But for larger underground networks, the toll was higher. 30, 40, even 50 men. And of course, lots of people went to prison. At the same time, Unhill worked as a government lawyer, and his poetry was being translated into other languages. When he was 33 years old, he got two scholarships. One to study international law at the Sorbonne in Paris, and another to study literature in Madrid. It was a big deal for him. But when he tried to make arrangements to leave, the government didn't permit it. He suspects officials already had their eyes on him at that point, because it was only a matter of time until they came after him. It was common for the government to infiltrate underground groups with moles, Angel says. And that's what he believes happened to his, and what led to his arrest in 1967. One morning at 4 a.m., a team of soldiers and police surrounded his block, forced open his door, and apprehended him, guns in hand. After a military tribunal found him guilty of conspiracy, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He won't say much about what life was like there, only that it was a different world. He saw some terrible things, and the guards always won the fights. There were all kinds of people in prison, doctors, lawyers, farmers, but everybody was equal there, he says. They'd all faced the same dangers and suffered together, and that created a brotherhood that was worth as much, maybe even more, than a blood bond. After he finished his sentence and moved to Miami, Angel and his prison mates founded a number of groups for ex-political prisoners. For them, he says, the things that happened can't be forgotten. Angel says newer waves of Cuban immigrants have a different vision of Cuba. They might look favorably on the dawn of amicable relations between our two countries, but my uncle and his community are as anti-Castro as ever. For him, the American government has capitulated to the Cuban regime and to the interests of investors who don't care about the well-being of the Cuban people. They're just looking for an untapped market. But what about the 53 prisoners the Cuban government released recently? ¿Y los 53 presos que soltaron? Cuba no ha liberado ninguno. He doesn't buy it. Lo ha escarcelado. He says they haven't truly liberated any of the dissidents. They've just given them a sort of stay until they clamor for human rights again, when they'll be thrown back into their cells. What he's heard from activists in Cuba is that more than a hundred political prisoners are still jailed in the country. Todavía hay ciento y tantos. 
presos políticos en Cuba. Okay, so is any of this meaningful change? Es posible si ellos quieren, pero piensen en lo siguiente. Change is possible if the Castro government wants it, Angel says. El gobierno de Cuba. But they're not ready to give up no power. It will always be the same regime. As long as there's no protection under the law and human rights continue to be violated, we haven't made any progress. Y mientras eso no cambie, nada hemos avanzado. The story of Cuban exile Ángel Cuadra, brought to us by his great niece, reporter Vanessa Rancaño. You're listening to Cuba and America after the thaw on America Abroad. Coming up... Anything we can do to contribute to having Cubans feel like they have a voice. They're not just listeners, but rather they can be active contributors and participants in a conversation about the nation's future is a good thing. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad and at Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and you're listening to Cuba and America After the Thaw, a special collaboration with Latino USA and America Abroad. Now, one huge obstacle to normal relations between the U.S. and Cuba, the long history of human rights violations against the Cuban people by the Castro regime. Independent watchdog organization Freedom House says Cuba falls just shy of their worst-of-the-worst list for lack of political rights and civil liberties. This is no surprise to James Kaysen. He's now the mayor of Coral Gables, Florida. But in 2003, during Cuba's Black Spring, he was head of the U.S. intersection in Havana. Well, this was the time when the dissidents, um, the independents all over the island were beginning to organize. There were independent libraries being set up everywhere. You had independent doctors and nurses. And the opposition was beginning to play in what the Cubans called the battle of ideas. Fidel felt that if he didn't crack down on this budding independent movement, they could end up losing political control, uh, and that's something he's never wanted to see happen. So uh, he rounded up quickly the 75. What happened was the 75 uh, were given long jail sentences, sent off uh, all over the island in prison. We began working with the families of the dissidents. We helped them uh, communicate and gave them moral support and the psychological support that we're behind you. We, we think that you should not have been arrested because you didn't do anything that would be a crime in any other country. So we spent a lot of time trying to get the international press and the other embassies to understand what was happening and that these were people worthy of support. The Castro's tolerance for dissidents hasn't improved since then. Reports of arrests and shutting down public events pour in daily through underground blog posts and tweets from the island. So Obama's December 17th announcement was understandably greeted with some skepticism. Yesterday I spoke with Raul Castro to finalize Alan Gross's release and the exchange of prisoners and to describe how we will move forward. I made clear my strong belief that Cuban society is constrained by restrictions on its citizens. In addition to the return of Alan Gross and the release of our intelligence agent, we welcome Cuba's decision to release a substantial number of prisoners whose cases were directly raised with the Cuban government by my team. You know, the problem with these dictatorships is they can always arrest people faster than we can get them out. Elliot Abrams is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He also held key positions working on human rights and Latin American issues in President Reagan's State Department. I don't think the release of the Cuban spies and the 53 political prisoners is all that significant unless it's the predicate to real change in Cuba. 
Abrams says Obama's announcement is essentially a backing down, an offer to change American policy in exchange for exactly nothing. The president is arguing that if we open up trade with Cuba, that'll open up their economy and then you'll see freedom come to Cuba. But that's nonsense. Look at Vietnam. Look at China. Look at Cambodia. It's just not the case that increased trade with the United States changes the politics of a communist regime. Cynthia Arnson is the director of the Latin American program at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. She says there's reason to be optimistic. There's probably the hope that the people who will most directly benefit initially are ordinary Cuban citizens, um, both from the um, increased ability of U.S. citizens to travel to Cuba, as well as the increased ability of family members to send back remittances. And I think what we have gotten in return is the opportunity to engage more productively on those issues of human rights violations, of the treatment of political dissidents, of the creation of, of space. There's no guarantee that that will be successful, but at least it's a different path. But it's a slow and difficult one. Fidel Castro recently ended his long silence to restate his mistrust of the American government. This was followed soon after by his brother Raul's demand that the U.S. hand over the base at Guantanamo Bay and pay hundreds of millions in reparations to Cuba for losses suffered during the embargo. These demands are not likely to be met anytime soon, but the Castros will not live forever. There will be a succession in Cuba. Um, it will come from within the Communist Party. And the question is whether, as in other cases of transition in Eastern Europe, whether there are elements within the party itself that are interested in greater reform and greater political opening. Arturo Lopez Levy thinks there are. He's a professor and co-author of a book about Raul Castro and the new Cuba. And 20 years ago, he was a political analyst for the Cuban Ministry of the Interior. If we end the embargo, basically what we are saying is, you know, it's, it's up to you to get more from the world in which you live. This is quite important at a moment of critical transition in Cuban society and the Cuban elite. He says it's a big improvement. If what you want to do is to promote democracy and human rights, the more Cubans can uh, be in contact with American society, the better. Uh, the best ambassadors of American values are Americans themselves. But others, like Frank Calzon, director of Washington, D.C.'s Center for a Free Cuba, are not so quick to let go of the years of fear and mistrust of the Castro regime. The president did say that the uh, American policies toward Cuba gave Cuba a rationale for repression. I was flabbergasted when I heard the president say that because repression on the dictatorship has little or nothing to do with the foreign policy of any government. It has to do with the need of the dictatorship to remain in power indefinitely. For him, change is only possible at the hands of the Cuban people. This is a dynasty. Uh, so waiting for them to die is not the answer. The Part of the answer is something that the president apparently ignores when he says that nothing has changed. Something has changed. The new technology has changed. The Internet has changed. The willingness of the Cuban people to challenge the government on the streets have changed. Now, that change, the Internet, 
is something that has been brewing on the streets of Cuba for some time. One of the most well-known advocates for freedom of expression using technology is activist and blogger Joanny Sanchez. She spoke with me at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs last summer. La tecnología es intuitiva. Technology is intuitive. It's got a certain logic to it. If you learn the logic to it, you can learn how to fix practically anything. I built my first computer with pieces from here and there, and I remember a friend of mine had given me something that was useless. This was a machine for purposes of plucking hair from your legs, and I traded that in at the black market for a microprocessor. After that, my life changed because I had my own infrastructure where I could place my ideas. It wasn't a washer. It was text. It was graphics. There was a creative process, and that changed my life. Now on the island, there's a huge illegal network of Wi-Fi connections and Ethernet cables running house-to-house, creating digital tunnels to prohibited websites, plus a system known as the sneaker net, passing information from hand-to-hand via flash drives. We don't have a mic on TV, we don't have the radio, and we don't have the ability to write for national newspapers. But we do have flash drives, we have pen drives. One day when Cuba changes, in addition to all the statues that you will have to build and the ones you will have to tear down, they will have to build a statue to the flash memory. Because that's how we're doing it. Because that small device has given us a lot of freedom has given us a lot of information and has enabled us to exchange copies and copies from hand to hand to learn about the social stability, to hear their voices and to see their faces. It's this ingenuity on the part of the Cuban people that's inspired 26-year-old Raul Moas and his Miami-based organization Roots of Hope, Raices de la Esperanza. They formed in 2003 to, in part, provide free technology to Cuban youth on the island. Our goal is not uh, a political one. It's not regime-changing Cuba. It's not to bring down a government. Not at all. Our uh, goal, instead, is to empower people, to empower generations so that they can define what their country's future should look like. Cuba is one of the least connected countries in the world. At the same time, it has one of the best education systems with an almost 100% literacy rate which leaves an island full of smart, motivated people with few outlets for expression and little access to the outside world. Even on the island, access is limited. Now, if you want to talk with somebody in the island, you have to find a secure line, and then through the secure line, you can talk with somebody in the island. And sometimes they don't want to talk because it's too expensive to use the cell phones, and they know that somebody's going to listen. Carlos Ponce is director for Latin American and Caribbean programs at Freedom House, He says an Internet connection can eat up a big chunk of an average Cuban's monthly salary. And while the Cuban government says about a quarter of the population has full access to the Internet, Ponce says that number is closer to only 5%. And most of those are the Cuban elite or those who work for the regime. So it is positive to have better technologies or to find a way with satellites or with other ways to have access to better internet connections in Cuba. But I don't think that's the government approach right now. For their part, the Miami-based Roots of Hope has been collecting and sending used and refurbished cell phones, laptops, USBs, and tablets to young people on the island who couldn't afford them otherwise. 
Since 2009, they've distributed more than 12,000 pieces of hardware, all within the bounds of U.S. and Cuban law. Executive Director Raul Moas says that access is key to being a citizen of the 21st century. We don't ask, are you a member of the Communist Party? Are you a member of the opposition? Frankly, we don't care. What's important is that if you're a young person in Cuba, you should be connected so you can contact and be in touch with your counterparts on the island and the world at large. They also don't ask how they're using that hardware. Moas points to the package, essentially a collection of digital media, TV shows, music, digital magazines, offline copies of websites, including all of Wikipedia, uncensored material that comes into the island through travelers or illegal satellite dishes. All of this is bought and sold on the black market and distributed via flash drives. Most young people don't get their daily information uh, quota, if you would, from state media anymore. They seek it in alternative channels. And so we know the potential that has. I mean, we've seen the changes in psyche and, and the changes in, in, in the way that Cubans see themselves over the last few years. And anything we can do to contribute to that, to having Cubans feel like they have a voice, they're not just listeners, but rather they can be active contributors and participants in a conversation about the nation's future, is a good thing. With the government in control of nearly every aspect of island life, there's no question they're aware of the package and the other ways the Cuban people have worked around the Internet restrictions. So, for MOAS, the question is not, will they allow it, but rather, how far will they let it go? It's no longer a question of whether we will, it's how quickly can we without losing control And how can we deeply enough to really have it be some sort of of jolt of electrifying force for the economy to help it rebound? And so you're dealing with that internally and then externally. There's incredible social pressure, particularly from young people. The older generation, he says, is understandably fearful of the change that technology brings. That said, the Cuban government is not monolithic. Uh, There are individuals within the system who recognize the need to open up. I would say that's particularly the case amongst people who are advocating for economic reforms. And for people like Moas, who are committed to making sure a new generation of Cubans are able to connect and reconnect, no matter where they find themselves. You've been listening to Cuba and America After the Thaw on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs. Special thanks to A.C. Valdez, Michael Johnson, Lita Hartman, Antonia Cerejido, as well as Scott Gurian. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and this is America Abroad, from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.